Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the All Music Books podcast where we talk to authors of music books, bios, history, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Brad Schreiber, who's the co-author of a book called Becoming Jimi Hendrix, From Southern Crossroads to Psychedelic London, The Untold Story of a Musical Genius. Welcome back, Brad. Great to be with you again, Steve. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this book. You know, Jimi Hendrix is a rock and roll icon, and everyone of almost every generation recognizes his picture and can name at least one song or two. His peak years, including Are You Experience, Purple Haze off of that record, his Woodstock performance, it only lasted four years. But that's not the story you tell in this book. There hadn't been a book about the early formative years of Jimmy. And when I say formative, I'm not only including living poverty-stricken in Seattle, losing his mother early, a very difficult relationship with his father, but his military service how he developed as a guitarist in Nashville. And maybe my favorite section of the quote-unquote unknown Jimmy is when he got to Harlem and then to Greenwich Village, an amazing array of really strange people surrounding him. So that's the story we wanted to tell. That was my favorite part as well. I was just, you know, thunderstruck because if you know him and specifically how his music advanced, that was such a pivotal moment. Yeah, so many colorful characters. I You know, we'll talk a a bit about Nashville. There was a guy named Johnny Jones who was considered the guitarist, and Jimmy had a guitar battle with him and lost because he didn't have enough power from his amplifier. But if they could have actually heard what Jimmy was doing, they would have recognized in Nashville that he was the new guitar king instead of Johnny Jones. That's interesting. We'll get there because I wonder if that doesn't influence his uh, love of volume later on in his career. (laughs) Yes. Well, so I know you're a huge Hendrix fan, and your co-author, Stephen Roby, is a Hendrix historian and the former editor of Experience Hendrix magazine. So I'm going to guess that this was just a way for you guys to address this fascinating and foundational part of his life that, as you said, it got very little attention. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm very proud of with Becoming Jimi Hendrix is we've made clear that it's not quote-unquote conspiracy theory that Jimi was killed. Uh, Mike Jeffrey who was his manager, had been in the British Secret Service. He had borrowed money from the mafia to build Electric Lady Studios in New York. Jimmy had told many people in the music industry that he wanted to break the contract with Mike Jeffrey. He was afraid of him. When Jimmy died with a lot of mystery around it, people expunged the story of Dr. John Bannister, the first doctor who looked at him in London who said, this man has got red wine poured into his lungs forcibly. He couldn't have drunk this wine. His body was saturated with it, along with nine very strong German sedative tablets. So that story got buried. That's the forensic angle. And, of course, Mike Jeffrey being fearful of losing Jimmy and not having the money to pay back the mob is the more circumstantial angle to what is the murder of Jimi Hendrix. Well, as you said, that's buried in there. And when I read that, I was pretty surprised because I had heard some of the theories. But this one, you're certain of, it sounds like. Uh, I'm very certain of it. In fact, James Tappy Wright, who was a roadie, um, knew Mike Jeffrey. And Jeffrey, shortly before he died in an airplane accident, told Wright drunkenly, I had to do it. I had to take him out. He was going to leave me. 
and he was going to leave me broke. I also got a confirmation of that story from Richie Havens. Oh, wow. Who told me when he saw Jimmy at the Isle of Wight that Jimmy was terrified of Jeffrey and knew he was trying to track him. And Jimmy was avoiding him all through Europe. I wonder if any of this goes back, as you mentioned. He grew up in Seattle with a very tragic childhood, losing his mother, trying to forge a relationship with a father he did not know. And, you know, obviously carried that with him throughout his life, that kind of fear. It's so powerful. It so shaped him. It also made him very adventuresome and made him very open to all kinds of people, sometimes not people who were reliable. When you want to know who Jimmy was at his core, you have to understand that as a child, his mother died possibly from abuse from another man after she had left Jimmy's father, that they were starving. People in the neighborhood in Seattle fed them. Sometimes they woke up in a house with no electricity. And his father, Al Hendricks, had a grade school education, not even a high school education. And literally, Jimmy would, uh, you know, he was left-handed, Steve. But sometimes Al would come into the house, and because Jimmy knew that his father didn't like seeing him playing left-handed, he would flip the guitar over without changing the strings as a teenager, Steve, and play right-handed because Al Hendricks would say, Playing left-handed is a sign of the devil. Wow. You know, I always figured as a kid when I saw him left-handed that he just restrung it. But uh, in your book, I learned that he did not. He just turned it upside down and played. Yeah. Uh, You know, keeping aside the discussion of what you think about his music, not only could he do that as a teenager, but he had instantaneous memory of music. So you could play a song for him and he could repeat it right back to you. And also his love of Every kind of music, I think, also made him an even greater talent. And he might be a poster child for escapism through music with that kind of a background. And and clearly, you know, throughout his short life, that is where he turned inward. Yeah, you know, he had that guitar with him all the time when he was a boy. And then when he went into the 101st Airborne, he had been caught joyriding twice in Seattle. And in 1962, at least according to the Seattle judges, You either did the time or you could volunteer for the Army. Mm. And Jimmy had seen a friend with a Screaming Eagles 101st Airborne patch. And the next thing you know, the greatest electric guitarist of all time is in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. It was just completely random that it worked out that way. And he was totally inappropriate for military service. Well, I knew he was in the Army, but jumping out of planes, I did not know that. And he went through that whole curriculum, didn't he? The most interesting thing about his training to jump out of planes at Fort Campbell is there's a there's a quote from him where even though he didn't physically like being in danger, he loved what he called the wind sounds as he jumped. (laughs) He heard sonic possibilities in so many things. He once broke an amp. I think this was in Nashville. He busted an amp and he loved the sound of it because the cone was ripped and had a very gnarly sound. (laughs) And all the other guys who were playing with him at the time were going, what are you talking about? It's broken. And Jimmy already was hearing these interesting, diverse sounds and thinking about them musically. It's funny, his devotion to his guitar, both in grade school, really, in high school, and then in the Army, seemed to gain the attention and and derision of bullies. Yeah, it's true. They threatened to break an acoustic guitar that he constantly played whenever, you know, there was downtime. And it would keep guys up at night. So they grabbed it from him and threatened to bust the guitar. And he got literally down on his knees and begged them. 
he was not only incredibly talented, but there was this unnatural attachment to holding the guitar and this idea of being bereft of familial ties so that music comforted him as well as inevitably led him to be the star that we love. And, and he would sleep with his guitar in the army, wouldn't he? Yeah, he often did that. He did that in a number of places. Um, even in New York, uh, I'm sure that he took an acoustic and he'd play it until he fell asleep and people would find him in the morning and the guitar was laying on his stomach in his chest. Wow. The one thing that was surprising is uh, the outcome of his service, right? He, he joins because he's going to do time or join the service. How did he leave the army? Interestingly, a lot of people who had done research said that Jimmy got an honorable discharge because he had been injured, hurt his ankle in doing one of the training jumps at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Well, Steve and I did some research and we found out from some guys in New York that he was malingering. He just didn't like being in the Army. He was a terrible shot. He once got written up, how can I put this tastefully, for abusing himself in the latrine. Okay, I think that's clear enough. And then he claimed that he injured himself, but he really wasn't injured. And the commanders said, Hendricks, this guy is just a problem. He wants to go. Let's let him go. And he got an honorable discharge. He was thinking about going back to Seattle, but the closest place was Nashville. And interestingly, there were so many great rhythm and blues guitars there that he had to really step up his act. And I think that's where he grew the greatest in Nashville after the Army. However, the Army and Fort Campbell would introduce him to a very important friend who would play a major role in his music and his life. Yeah, that would be Billy Cox, who heard Jimmy playing amazing guitar lines inside of a recreation area on the base. It was pouring rain, and Jimmy was just wailing away, and Billy was standing outside going, oh my God, I've never heard anyone play guitar like that. And so... You know, Billy playing bass joined Jimmy and became a lifelong friend, inevitably down the road played with Jimmy. But his friendship and his support were really important because so many things kept shifting. So many alliances in Jimmy's life kept shifting that he really needed friends. And when he had to inevitably go to London to get discovered, it was super difficult for him psychologically because he was leaving behind the few people who had been with him all along. And Billy would stay for quite a while and be a rock. When Jimmy, in fact, gets discharged in Kentucky, he's got $400 in his pocket. And you discovered that he and Jimmy uh, attended a civil rights demonstration. Yes, this was my favorite discovery, probably, in becoming Jimmy Andrews. We learned that Jimmy and Billy used to go downtown and watch the civil rights demonstrations. They just eat their lunch and just watch it idly and then, you know, go back to the base. Well, one day Jimmy just turned to Billy Cox and said, you know what, we're not going to watch anymore. We're going to participate. And they walked into a lunchroom and sat in a whites-only section and were arrested. The owner of the club where they played, the Del Morocco, bailed them out. But showing very little racial harmony and understanding, he made them pay back the bail money. And it's interesting. The Nashville section was, you know, really interesting to me because I didn't realize he played that much there, but that was a very important period for his musical formation. And he had lots of bands there, lots of gigs, some with Billy Cox, you know, some in Nashville. This is where he really continued to experiment with his sound. And, and as we talked earlier, maybe more importantly, his volume and feedback 
which sometimes were to the band leaders he was working for dismay. I mean, these are really tight rhythm and blues musical outfits. Yeah, and it, and that would repeat itself, Steve, also in New York when he'd go to the Harlem clubs. But you have to understand the basic quality of Jimmy's wonderful controlled feedback in the early 60s when there was nothing like it. He literally had to wait for the audience to catch up with what he was hearing in 63 and on, which is kind of remarkable. And he wasn't the leader, let's not forget that. Right. In Nashville, he would be a member of a band. You know, he went on the Chitlin circuit in the South, played with Little Richard and the Isley Brothers. He was always a member of a band. He was not a leader, so he couldn't really do everything he wanted to. He still tried, though, <laughs> which would get him into trouble sometimes with the band leaders. Oh, yeah. I mean, little Richard would fine him if he um, didn't wear the exact same outfit as the other backup guys. He once got fined $5 for wearing a different color pair of socks. You know, little Richard would yell him afterwards, $5, Hendrix. <laughs> you don't wear a chain for a belt, you know? Mm. He, he was wearing some chain instead of a leather belt. He's really wanted to be the flamboyant Hendrix that we all connect to and remember, but he also didn't have the wherewithal to leave these bands and create his own. Not yet. Yeah, and this is a legit Chitlin circuit where, you know, he was playing with pretty heavy hitters like Hank Ballard, the Isley Brothers. You mentioned Little Richard, mm -hmm. Curtis Mayfield, and, you mm -hmm. know, everybody wore matching outfits. They played the songs, you know, verbatim probably every night. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't Hendrix, you know, who was even at this point experimenting with hairstyles and, as you mentioned, his dress, which was not where everybody else was at. <laughs> not at all. In fact, when we were writing this, I came up with a phrase, admired, hired, and fired, <laughs> because it kept repeating itself. People would hear him play and go, oh, my God. This guy is head and shoulders above everybody else. But then he'd give him the charts. And when he wanted to step out and do a solo in a style that you and I would connect with Jimi Hendrix, they'd say, what are you doing? <laughs> and then he would be fired. Ike Turner fired him after uh, Jimmy sort of went a little wacky with his guitar work during a recording session. Right. He had performed, by the way, with Ike and Tina. And again, it was like, you're amazing. But you're a little too amazing. Back off. And, you know, he did get bailed out a lot by other musicians, and you mentioned a club owner. But what's really interesting, or, you know, predictable maybe, his love interest would often bail him out. There's a woman who was pretty, you know, heavy duty in Jimmy's life called Lithophane Pridgen. That's right, Lithophane Pridgen. And she would be in his circle for a really long time, which was a rarity for the many supportive women in his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, not to get too psychological, but when you idolized your mother who died at 33, you know, your relationship with women and your need to succeed and the support you get from the women doesn't make you bonded strongly to any one woman. So Lithophane Pridgen, when he got to New York and bumped into her, she was, I know it's a, it's a cruel term, but she was basically a groupie. She knew people like Sam Cooke, and she got around, and she not only was attracted to Jimmy, but she saw his ability as a blues artist. She wasn't interested in, you know, the controlled feedback stuff or Bob Dylan. She Literally, black people in Harlem in 1965 
thought Bob Dylan was country music, and they hated him. <laughs> and, you know, Jimmy fell in love, of course, with Dylan, especially his lyrics. And Lithuanian was saying, you know, you're meant to play the blues, not that country music. Yeah, I think he purchases that record with the grocery money, if I remember your book correctly. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, he played with all these people, and I forgot about Ike and Tina. And if you look at that list, uh, Little Richard, it didn't go well. But almost to a person, upon reflection, every person who cut him loose would acknowledge his greatness then and, and there. Yes. Little Richard, since um, the death of Jimmy, whenever anybody asks him about it, he never talks about the problems he quote-unquote objected to with Jimmy's dress and his style of play. He always talks about how magnificent he was and sort of takes credit for discovering him, which really is inaccurate. But my favorite story about people who played with him on the Chitlin circuit, he started setting his guitar on fire in 1964. Wow. People think, oh, 67 Monterey Pop. No, he was already experimenting with that on the Chitlin circuit, but he only had one guitar, Steve. <laughs> so he would set it on fire and then run backstage, smother the fire out with a rag, and do the same thing the next night. And Bobby Womack, who was on that bus tour, one day looked over at the scorch marks on his guitar and he said, man, your guitar looks like barbecue. <laughs> well, he does go through a lot of guitars and we'll get to one or two of those stories. You recount a great near miss story in your book involving the legendary Les Paul. Can you share that? Yeah, Les Paul, at that point he was in management and I was astounded to learn that when he started managing, he had disparate clients. He had Simon and Garfunkel, Willie Nelson, and Jose Feliciano. <laughs> okay, what do uh, these guys yeah. have in common? I don't know. Not much. But uh, he stopped in to a place called the Club Allegro in a small town in New Jersey because he was delivering some masters to Columbia Records in Manhattan. And he heard Joey D and the Starlighters who did the peppermint twist, and there was this amazing guitarist in the background. And we all know who that was. <laughs> so nobody knew Jimmy by name. So Les Paul was astounded. He drove into the city, comes back, and the band is gone, and he's asking the owner of the club, who was that amazing guy with the phenomenal guitar chops? And nobody knew. He was two hours from discovering Jimi Hendrix before Chaz Chandler of the Animals. <laughs> Somebody told them that he died, right? Yeah. When he asked about it, um, erroneously, the manager of the place said, oh, that guy who's really good who played with Joey D, I heard that he was smoking in bed and the place caught fire and he died in a motel room. Right. And then he, he saw a postcard or something, a, a poster with him and said, that's my guy. When Are You Experience was released, that's when Les Paul went, oh, that's the guy. And then he listened to the album and went, oh, man. I knew this guy, you know, a year and a half before anybody else did. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with Brad Schreiber. He's the author of Becoming Jimi Hendrix, From Southern Crossroads to Psychedelic London, The Untold Story of a Musical Genius. So you mentioned New York. You know, Jimi eventually moves there after several runs at the Apollo Theater with Little Richard and others. You know, he felt a bit put off by some of the limitations foisted upon him by Harlem, didn't he? Yeah, I think the best way to sum it up is there was one Harlem club owner who heard Jimmy on audition, and he literally thought that controlled feedback was atonal. It was just noise. And his quote was, you can just pack up all that noise and take it downtown. And in the parlance of 1965-66 New York, downtown meant Greenwich Village, where all the kids were listening to folk becoming electrified, a la Bob Dylan and so forth. And they figured, you know, you don't belong in a smooth R&B club in Harlem. You belong down there with all those crazy kids in the village. Yeah, and he eventually gets there. But at this particular point in time, you write that, quote, the part of Jimmy wanted to have his own group was at war with the part of him that felt he was simply not ready. Remember, too, that even though Jimmy was tired of being told what to do in terms of appearance, and what he could do musically, he was not writing his own music yet. And then everything changed when he met Linda Keith, the 20-year-old British model who was living in New York at that time and was the girlfriend of Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones. And she introduces him to Acid. I love this story. She brought him back to the apartment where she was staying the, the first time she saw him. And Jimmy was so naive that... Linda Keith said to him, would you like to try some acid? And Jimmy's response was, well, I don't know if I want any acid, but I would sure like to try some LSD. (laughs) He didn't even know it was the same thing. I know it sounds corny or it sounds cliched, but literally everything about Jimmy's songwriting changed when he took LSD. The science fiction that he loved reading as a boy in Seattle became part of his writing. The nature of psychedelia mixing with his excellent R&B chops, that happened. And Linda Keith was instrumental in not only opening up Jimmy to being more creative through LSD, but also writing his own songs and leaving the other bands and going out on his own. The psychedelic experience, along with uh, Bob Dylan, 
that really opened him up to being comfortable with his own singing, which he hadn't been doing a lot of. Isn't that correct? Yeah, it's really ironic. He he was not crazy about Dylan's voice, but he was crazy about Dylan's songwriting, the music, and especially, of course, the lyrics. In his guitar case, when he bopped around the village, he usually had some underwear, you know, some smokes, maybe some drugs, and Bob Dylan's songbook. That's basically what he carried around. His guitar case was his suitcase or his valise, if you would. And he always had Dylan's songbook, and eventually he would get to meet him. Yeah, and you sum that up quite nicely, because while the counterculture is happening and he moves to Greenwich Village and is panhandling in the street, you wrote that, quote, the surrealism and freedom of the village, along with his experimentation, proved fertile ground for Jimmy and his music. And that that really was the part that moved him forward. It is. It's like, as I said before, Nashville is where he improved his technique exponentially. And the village is where he began writing songs that would just defy comparison to anything in 1966. Third Stone from the Sun, which is one of my favorite songs of his. Believe it or not, he was even doing his psychedelic versions of the national anthem in clubs before, of course, the iconic performance at Woodstock. He attempted to do the Beatles song Rain, and he tried to emulate without the effects box, some of the backward music sound that the Beatles used. Um, He was willing to try almost anything. And the the kids finally, you know, in Greenwich Village were saying, oh, this guy's amazing. And all of a sudden he got a following. You know, something he probably shouldn't have tried, which he did, uh, aside from setting fire, is he once smashed his guitar in a fit of rage and uh, Linda Keith would surface again and she would get Jimmy a white Stratocaster. Unfortunately, the owner wanted it back. Can you tell us that story? (laughs) Yes. Well, the broken white Strat belonged to a girlfriend of his named Carol Shiraki. Unfortunately, Carol, like many women, fell in love with Jimmy, and Jimmy was not about to confine himself to one woman. So when Carol was putting uh, pressure on him, he took the white Stratocaster he'd been given and smashed it over a bedpost. His drummer at the time, Danny Casey, literally saw this happen. So Jimmy told Linda about this, and there was a hotel room that was just permanently reserved for the Rolling Stones in New York. And Linda went there because she was Keith Richards' girlfriend, opened the door, <laughs> took his white Stratocaster, and gave it to Jimmy to play. And then, unfortunately, Keith Richards shows up in New York, finds out, and is furious. And there are eyewitnesses to Keith Richards entering the Cafe Wa, where Jimmy was then, Jimmy James and the Blue Flames, dragged Linda Keith out of the club, yelled at her, and inevitably she told Jimmy, I gotta return the white Stratocaster to Keith. Didn't Keith show up with a gun as well? Keith Richards did have a gun on him. Nobody knows if it was loaded, but there were eyewitnesses to that. He was rather vindictive. He told Linda Keith's father, who was a member of the peerage in the UK, very wealthy and influential guy, your daughter is sleeping with a black junkie, quote unquote. Wow. And this prompted uh, Mr. Keith to fly to New York. Now, remember, Linda was only 20. 
So he literally, this is so dramatic. I've written a screenplay about this. I hope we'll be done one day. Mr. Keith literally walked into the Cafe Wa, found his daughter listening to Jimmy's band, and dragged her out and took her back to London as a ward of the court because she was not yet 21 years old. And that was the last time that Jimmy and Linda had any time together. It was a love affair that changed Jimmy's direction in life. And I think Linda Keith is the unsung heroine of Jimmy's story. Yeah, it might have established the love for those white Stratocasters, too, because he would seem to use those throughout his career. So you mentioned the Café Wa, which is in Greenwich Village, and Jimmy's getting regular gigs there. And Andrew Lug Oldham, who at that point was the manager of the Rolling Stones, and Seymour Stein, who would eventually launch Sire Records, they both step in and take a pass on Jimmy. But it's Chaz Chandler, the former bassist for the Animals, who sees him and is blown away. Yeah. Now, Lou Goldham and Stein, remember, uh, came before this incident with Keith because Linda was trying to use her connection to the Rolling Stones to get Jimmy discovered and get a deal. She didn't understand how unlikely this was because here's the girlfriend of Keith Richards saying, well, I'm sleeping with this amazing black guitarist, and would you help get him a deal? What is that going to do to their relationship to Keith and the Stones? Right. So they politely said, yes, he's been very impressive. We'll see. I don't know. One of the most amazing stories in Becoming Jimi Hendrix is the fact that Linda Keith walked out of a club in New York called Ondine as Chaz Chandler was walking in. They knew each other. And she goes, oh, my God, Chaz, there's this amazing guitarist, Jimi Hendrix. You've got to see him at the Cafe Wa." And at that time in history, Chaz Chandler had decided he was going to leave the animals and go into management. So he said, well, that's interesting. You know, I am looking for an act, and I want to do this song that I heard that I think would be a great cover song called Hey Joe. So they both show up for an afternoon gig at the Cafe Wa. Jimmy walks on stage, and not knowing Chaz Chandler and not knowing his past, he just happens to open the first song, Hey Joe. Oh, wow. And Chaz Chandler is so stunned that he drops the milkshake he's been drinking <laughs> into his lap. And he takes him to uh, the Kettle of Fish uh, hangout in the village and says, I got to sign you. I'm telling you, the UK will go crazy for you. And then you can come back to the United States. Well, it's interesting, too, because if memory serves in your book, uh, Chas Chandler, went, upon hearing that, and that's an old kind of a blues, folk blues tune, but Hendrix's version is sort of what he had in mind, right? Yeah, he wanted something that was a little more peppy, a little more dynamic. You know, with Jimmy's wonderful voice, which ironically he was always shy about, and his amazing work, Chandler all of a sudden, in one instant, said, this is the first person I'm going to manage. And I believe in many ways that Are You Experienced? This is just personal taste. But my favorite album of his is Are You Experienced? Not only because of the variety of music, but Chaz Chandler, as the producer, said, okay, Jimmy, you're noodling. You're, this is turning into an eight-minute song. Let's get a little disciplined here. Let's, let's narrow it down to three or four minutes. And he had very good discipline upon Jimmy and improved Jimmy's songwriting. And in a way, that's why I think Are You Experienced did so well, 
is also personally my favorite. Well, that Hey Joe is certainly my favorite take. I don't think there's another one that even comes close. I'm sure there's a lot of old blues ones out there, but but that one I think, you know, kind of launched Hendrix into opening up the ears of a younger generation to some of this amazing music that had been out there because he he just did it differently. Yeah, and I think, Steve, that it's fair to say that you could see flashes of everything Jimmy wanted to do in that first album. Not surprising. Here's a guy who finally has his own band, and he's brilliant at R&B. He's interested in psychedelia. He can write an achingly beautiful ballad like The Wind Cries Mary. He can do funny little freak-out things on Third Stone from the Sun. He basically got to try out everything he would eventually do later in his career on his first album. We're speaking with Brad Schreiber, who's the co-author of a book called Becoming Jimi Hendrix, From Southern Crossroads to Psychedelic London, The Untold Story of a Musical Genius. So Jimmy would eventually move to London, and that move with Chas Chandler is negotiated in the Kettle of Fish, Bob Dylan bar kind of in New York City. I love this story that you tell. Jimmy steps off the plane into Heathrow, and he's carrying a single bag. It's hard to understand because it wouldn't happen today in the music industry. And again, Mike Jeffrey, nefarious Mike Jeffrey, who I believe took out Jimmy, used his own connections in intelligence to get Jimmy into the country. Jimmy was having a real hard time. The British customs official said he doesn't have a place to live. He doesn't have a band. He doesn't have a regular gig. The best we'll give you is a two-week visa. And they're going, no, no, he's going to become a star. And they, they're... Customs were like, we don't care. So Mike Jeffrey actually helped to get Jimmy into the UK. And stunningly, within a matter of weeks, the creme de la creme of the British rock world all knew him and were going to all of his gigs around London, so astonished at what Jimmy was actually doing. Yeah, and London is where he would become Jimi Hendrix. And in fact, early on, he invited Cream on stage to join him for Howlin' Wolf's Killin' Floor. And Eric Clapton stopped playing and left the stage, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm sorry to correct you, but basically Jimmy loved Clapton. So he basically said to Chaz Chandler, oh, Cream's playing at the Polytechnic in central London. And Jimmy sort of begged and said, could, could we go there and could I sit in? So Chaz Chandler cleared it with Eric Clapton, who knew nothing about Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, okay, you know, if you have some guy you want us to play with and you think he's good. So they start playing Killing Floor, and Jimmy starts playing it with a clarity and a speed that is so astonishing that after about eight bars, Eric Clapton literally walks off the stage and goes to his dressing room. And Chas Chandler thinks, oh, my God, I've humiliated him, and I didn't intend to. And Chaz Chandler goes back into the dressing room, and I assume this, you know, we're not allowed to swear in this interview. So I will tell you that literally when Chaz Chandler walked into the dressing room, Eric Clapton was trying to light a cigarette, and his hand was shaking. Wow. And he looked up at Chaz Chandler and said, you didn't tell me he was that effing good, <laughs> did you? But ironically, they became incredibly close friends, and Clapton loved what he did and supported him in every way he could for the rest of Jimmy's life. And to your point and my bad, it would probably be a bit more humiliating if you were the one owning the stage and you invite him up and then you <laughs> sulk off to the dressing. Exactly, Steve. And the fact of the matter is, as you well know, 
because you know like much more about varieties of music than I do. In the blues idiom in the UK, people were spray painting Clapton as God on wall. Right. So he was representing the black R&B music idiom amongst the white musical glitterati of London. And then all of a sudden, Jimi Hendrix shows up and people like Pete Townsend and Eric Clapton are talking to each other going, where does this leave us? Well, a couple of weeks later, the Jimi Hendrix experience is in fact formed and born. One of the interesting stories I found was how drummer Mitch Mitchell was chosen. I had never heard that. I assumed it was the, the usual band formations, but not so. This is a little embarrassing to fans of Jimi Hendrix, who as wonderful a person as he was and an amazing musician made a lot of bad decisions or very odd decisions in his life. He was auditioning drummers, and there were some good drummers. He liked Mitch Mitchell's hair. It reminded him of Bob Dylan. (sighs) Interestingly, nobody ever heard Jimmy say, Mitch Mitchell is a jazz drummer, and it will be very interesting to play rock stuff with a guy who's that technically proficient. And nobody ever heard Jimmy say, Noel Redding is a lead guitarist. So he's got lead guitar chops, but I'm going to put him on bass guitar. And nobody ever heard him say, there are no black lead guitarists who have a white band in 1967. But all those things happened. And in addition to the music, there was the socio-political thing about the experience that really opened people's eyes. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Three months later, RU Experience is released. The single was Hey Joe. It hits the top 10. And now he has officially become Jimi Hendrix, as we know him. Yeah. My favorite bit, and I've, I've written articles about Jimmy, and I always bring up this story because it's so wonderful, and it's, it so summarizes how far ahead of the curve he was. When Purple Haze was being remastered as a single, Track Records in London sent the recording to reprise at Warner and Burbank. And on the box of the tape, the London technician in the studio had written deliberate distortion, do not correct. (laughs) In essence, even the center of the music industry in the United States had never heard the controlled feedback that Jimmy would make famous. And in London, they were afraid that they would clean it up. It's funny because your book does include an epilogue of, you know, where Hendrix would go. It's, you know, a short story, so readers will get some sort of a finale. But um, it's just an incredible account of the rise of someone who's just so great and has never been matched and, and had a lot of formative stuff happen early. You know, I want to congratulate you and Stephen. It's a great read. Really, really good. Uh, I really appreciate it. And that other Steve that we're talking about, Steve Roby, he wasn't a writer, but he was a, just since he was like 13 years old, he, he steeped himself in Hendrick's research. And when he came to me and said, would you write the book based on this research? I was stunned. I, I knew so little about the hardships in Jimmy's life and some of the insane characters. I mean, he got out of Nashville because a guy said he was going to manage Jimmy and take him to New York. Turned out, He was a female impersonator and hit on Jimmy. And Jimmy went, no, I don't think so, (laughs) left the apartment and knew no one in the city of New York. That's how he got to New York. That's just indicative of some of the wild stuff 
that happened before he became the household name that we so love. Well, there's a lot of those interesting stories, and what they do is add up to one of the great guitar player and musicians of our time, and it's a great book. What else do you have? you have anything else coming up? Well, I'm actually happy to tell you that I've just signed a deal. This is not music-related. It's more racial justice-related. There's a guy named Ron Stallworth who wrote the book Black Klansman. That's the film that yep. Spike Lee made. Mm -hmm. It's based on Ron being a black policeman and calling up the local Klan and then sending a white undercover officer. So Ron is going to write a new book that I'm going to co-write with him about his own experience in understanding rap music and using it to create a rapport with gang members and then going around the country back in the day in the 90s and lecturing police departments and saying, you want to understand these gangbangers? You have to learn their music. If you want to establish a rapport and really get to them, learn their music, learn their lyrics, and everything will change from there. Well, it sounds fascinating. And in some ways, it's very much a, a continuum of your work with this book. And then we've also interviewed you about Music is Power, which told a lot of those tales. So best of luck. And uh, let us know when that's out, because that's probably something we could work around. That's great. As always, it's a pleasure to talk to you, Steve. All right. Thank you, Brad. Is that the stars in the sky? If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com, and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an All Music Books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.